This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Chronicles Magazine Podcast. I am here today with Paul Gottfried, and we're happy to have a conversation with Grant Havers. And we're going to be talking about capitalism, history, and I want to use um, a a man by the name of George Grant as sort of a foil to have this conversation. So, Grant, thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right, let's not get George Grant and Grant Havers confused, but uh, <laughs> we we discussed having a conversation like this. Um, Paul's done a lot of work on the nature of the new left and uh, its relationship to Marxism. You have people like James Lindsay. Um, they interpret the current left as sort of a neo-Marxism, and they really emphasize the fact that it is a continuation of the old left. Uh, Paul sees that a little bit differently. So, Paul, could you just quickly um, summarize your view on the current woke left and how uh, it's being run by the capitalist class, and it's not uh, – it does not have a lot of similarities to the old Marxist left? Yeah, I, I feel I'm, you know, saying something that Grant could probably explain just as well. <laughs> I don't think our views on this differ very much, <clears throat> but and I think both of us view um, the woke left not as uh, uh, Marxism uh, um, vivus or a replay of, of of Marxism, but but rather as a movement of the left that uh, has pretty much absorbed the capitalist class. And in that sense, it was almost the kind of left-wing corporatism that we're now seeing, since you have the, the deep state, the surveillance state, um, the corporate capitalism, and the, and the leftist media and universities all seem to be on, this, on the same page. Um, therefore, to describe what is happening um, as uh, you know, an example of Marxism, in my view, is ridiculous, although I can understand why some people may honestly uh, embrace that error. Uh, but it seems, you know, that unlike Marxism, uh, wokeism is not about socioeconomic uh, division uh, or class war in the, in the Marxist sense, so much as um, what I see a war against white male Christians and against Western civilization, which is seen as the product of this or the work um, of this damn group of people. Um, and I, I see it mostly as a destructive force, as an attempt. I, I really don't see it as an attempt to replace one order with another. Uh, it's an attempt to destroy human relations as they've hitherto existed in just about all societies. Um, uh, it strikes not only at the white race, it strikes against gender differences, heterosexual identity, and so forth. Um, and uh, unlike Marxism, which did not do that well in Western countries outside of, you know, uh, uh, intellectual, small intellectual circles, and uh, then in France and Italy, there were large communist parties, uh, which were not, did not seem particularly bent on class revolution. Um, but uh, un unlike Marxism or communism, wokeism seems to have swept the Western world. Every government, um, every universe, but every university in the Western world, particularly, by the way, in Canada and Germany, which I think are perhaps the most extreme examples of, wo of, of woke totalitarianism that come to mind, 
there doesn't seem to be very much uh, that is effective that is opposing this. And even the opposition is simply a weakened form of wokeism, as far as I can see. You know, people who are who uh, are against uh, sexualizing the young but have no problem with gay marriage, or people you know who don't mind um, castrating older people to change their gender but have some objections to doing this with you know preschool children. So the the opposition seems to be on the whole rather ineffective and uh, seems to consist of people taking fallback positions um, and fighting something which I think they ultimately see as irresistible. But what it is, uh, I think Grant and I would argue, is not anything resembling traditional Marxism. A lot of this is coming out of um, the capitalist class, like you said, and few people have been as prescient on warning about this a relationship between the capitalists and the types of things that they can do by using the so-called mm. market in order to transform society and therefore profit from it has been George Grant. Um, so let's before we get down there, I, I want to hear from Grant a little bit about who was George Grant and what was his uh, political mm. and social context. Well, George uh, Parkin Grant, that's his full name, uh, is really the preeminent philosopher of of what was once Canadian conservatism. So he's uh, a philosophical and, and I suppose a theological defender of the Tory right uh, in Canada. Uh, his roots were loyalist. Uh, some of his ancestors had escaped uh, the American Revolution and uh, eventually migrated to uh, Ontario or, or Upper Canada, uh, as it was once called. So uh, there was a strong uh, loyalist uh, tradition uh, shaping uh, George Grant's thought, uh, although by the same token, um, his, uh, his roots were also uh, connected to uh, Anglo-liberal imperialism. Uh, both of his grandfathers uh, were establishment uh, Ontarians who, who were very much committed to the idea that the British Empire was uh, just uh, the providential uh, design of God. So uh, he came out of a family background that, that was not uh, necessarily 100% Tory. It was also very liberal progressivist, at least in the old sense of liberal progressivism. And mm -hmm. he once said that his mother, uh, Maud Parkin, didn't believe a word of Christianity, but she believed in uh, the idea of progress. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so he grew up uh, in the interwar period uh, between uh, World War One and, and World War Two. Uh, at first, attracted to his ancestral uh, liberal progressivism, but also uh, was uh, shaped by this Toryism, which which conflicted with that liberal progressivism. But what really uh, made Grant famous was the publication of his book *Lament for a Nation*. Uh, defeat the defeat of Canadian nationalism it came out in 1965. It's a short book, uh, but very influential because, uh, and this is the mature Grant. He was writing in his mid 40s by this point. Uh, Grant argued uh, two two things: one, conservatism was finished, and two, uh, Canada was finished as a sovereign nation. And in fact, Grant thought that those two developments were. Uh, interrelated uh, to each other. And it became a very popular book, although I doubt that it had much impact on the 
the intellectual right uh, in Canada. I mean, a few of us have been influenced by it, but uh, unfortunately, what he predicted, i.e. the demise of conservatism, really uh, uh, was fulfilled in the Canadian context and in the American context, which was uh, part of his uh, book as well. One of my favorite quotes uh, from George Grant, and you have heard it, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard it, basically just says that the directors of General Motors and the followers of Professor Marcuse sailed down the same river in different boats. So before I get Grant's take on that, Paul, uh, who was Marcuse? I, I think you asked me because he was my professor Exactly. Uh, at, at one time. He was, uh, although I, I, I always, you know, plead. Uh, sort of innocence when it, it comes to his radicalism, because he really went at the deep end after he went out to California, your state, he went out to California um, after uh, neither Yale nor Brandeis would, you know, would give him a contract beyond his retirement age of 65. Um, but he was uh, 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 part of what was really the first generation of the Frankfurt School, came to the United States, and he just spent some time uh, in Germany after the war and uh, his Berliner Vorträge, his Berlin lectures of 1973 were really stemwinders in terms of, of animating the German radical left. Um, he always claimed to be a, uh, a, a sort of a, a Marxist literalist, almost biblicist. Every word of Marx, he said he would defend. Um, although I didn't find that much Marxism in his his actual thought, which was um, uh, an attempt to create a revolutionary ideology that would combine third world um, uprisings, which typically took place under Marxist auspices or claimed to be Marxist, and student radicals in the United States. Um, and to some degree, uh, black nationalists or the black radicals, although, although I think they were, they were pretty much peripheral to his work, his student Angela Davis would incorporate them more fully into this revolutionary mix. Um, and uh, uh, Mar Marcuse, <clears throat> Marcuse believed that we had the means to achieve a true socialist or world socialist society, but uh, our consciousness had not fully developed to a point at which this was attainable. And therefore, you know, he came along to, uh, to galvanize revolutionaries everywhere. Um, and uh, the first, the, th the, uh, the evil <clears throat> against which they were to rebel was sexual repression. And this makes sense within the context of the Frankfurt School, which tried to fuse Freudianism and Marxism uh, and came up with something that I don't think either Marx or Freud would have recognized as his own. But uh, there, there was an attempt to link capitalist repression with uh, with sexual repression, and this goes back to the Frankfurt School in the 1930s, uh, and there were early works that came out, relatively early works by Eric Fromm and Max Horkheimer, dealing with the uh, the aspect of sexual repression in late capitalist society. So Marcuse uh, took this theme uh, and sort of carried it to the uh, the post World War II American context. And you know, promised both socialism, and I think by, by the end of his you know his career, something like polymorphous sexuality, like all kinds of sexual goodies. You know, once once we attained a socialist society, although for some reason this had not appeared in the Soviet Union, right? And the the only explanation he had was that you know the Soviets represent derailed socialism, which of course 
was Trotsky's view, and uh, the United States represented some kind of neo-fascist repression, but, but, but both had failed to develop into sexually liberated socialist societies. All right. So, Grant, given that Marcuse was a, a forerunner of this of this new left in some ways, what did uh, George Grant see in capitalism as it was developing in the 20th century that would cause him to link up uh, the interests of General Motors, which of course is a representation of uh, you know the corporate sphere in general? What would cause him to kind of see these two as being compatible with each other? Well, just to provide a little context there, I mean, sometimes Grant, uh, especially in Lament for a Nation, um, almost sounds like a Marxist in his critique of uh, capitalism, uh, specifically uh, uh, American or, or Canadian capitalism. So on the one hand, uh, Marx uh, was admired by Grant uh, for his insights, uh, especially uh, Marx's view, uh, as he and Engels famously put it in the Communist Manifesto, uh, all that is solid melts into air. Uh, in other words, uh, Grant sympathized with the traditional Marxian view that uh, capitalism destroys traditions, mm -hmm. uh, including patriarchy. I, I don't think feminists quite understand that, but uh, uh, Grant and, uh, really appreciated Marx's insight that um, Capitalism is not a conservative force, it's a transformative and revolutionary force uh, that is quite happy to destroy traditions if they're no longer profitable or if they get in the way of uh, technological or economic progress. Uh, now, of course, Marx welcomed that. He, he, he thought that the capitalist destruction of tradition would enable uh, the rise of communism. And that's where Grant and Marx, of course, disagreed. Uh, so on the other hand, uh, Grant thought that the Marxian tradition as a whole uh, did not understand that uh, capitalism was far more progressive in a technological sense than socialism ever could be. I, I think somewhere in Lament, he even comments that uh, if Marxian socialism uh, was to work, you'd almost have to rediscover a pre-modern view of ethics. <laughs> uh, Aristotle, one, one would have to have uh, control uh, over your passions that would discourage uh, capitalist consumerism in order for socialism to happen. So um, certainly uh, Grant w was not sympathetic with uh, the Marxian political program, uh, partly because he thought it was already obsolete uh, by the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. there, there was no way in Grant's view that socialism in any form could compete mm -hmm. with the rabid progressivism of uh, capitalism, which would then explain in Grant's view why the left uh, has not really put up an effective resistance uh, mm -hmm. to capitalism, especially the woke left. I, I don't think Grant would be surprised at all Mm -hmm. that uh, the woke left it may sound anti-capitalist, but has been co-opted uh, by the, uh, the capitalist elites uh, of our time. Uh, so Grant predicted all this as far back uh, as the 1960s, which set him apart from, I think, most of the North American writers. He had been writing in Europe uh, or in England. I, I think his thoughts would be uh, more comparable. Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, anti-capitalist traditions there. But uh, in North America, I think many people on the right thought he was odd. 
for attacking capitalism. Uh, many people on the left admired him for that, but then didn't like the fact that he was a social conservative mm -hmm. uh, who believed that both capitalism and the left were equally anti-traditional. I mean, Grant's kind of alone in this, and he took a very different view of capitalism, like like uh, you know Grant Habers just mentioned. But what did he see in the dynamics of capitalism that would cause him to realize that it really was something that was going to be used to facilitate um, the collapse of what he considered traditional Canada? Well, who was that question? That's for Grant. <laughs> it's for it's for, for whomever. I, I mentioned Paul, but you know, I'm I'm just curious what he saw in capitalism. So basically, the way that like a libertarian or someone would interpret you know these dynamics is that it's because of the state and because of the fusion of state interests with corporate interests that capitalism can become corrupted mm -hmm. at all. But Grant saw it as more basic than that. There's something. There's priorities and incentives built into the market process that would cause them to be at odds with the interests and priorities of someone looking to you know defend and preserve their traditions. You know, I, I had uh, friends who taught at the University of Toronto. Uh, this goes back to the 1960s. And uh, they gave me, was a wedding gift, and uh, several wedding gifts. One of them was Lament for a Nation by, uh, by, by Grant's distant relative, uh, George Grant. And they explained to me that this was written by this very curmudgeonly Canadian. And I just might read it because it was amusing. You know, as an American conservative, uh, you know, I couldn't take this guy seriously because of uh, his hatred of capitalism and the fact that he so often sounds like a Marxist. I must say when I read him back then, that was my impression. But in, in recent decades, perhaps par partly under, under Grant's uh, guidance, I've developed a much more positive uh, view of, of, of George Grant. And I, I think most most of his insights were correct. The, the one thing I hold against him, which I've, I mentioned this to, to Grant, is that he was a Straussian of, of sorts or fellow traveler of the Straussians. Uh, but he probably didn't know exactly. As, both of us have written books that are critical of uh, the Straussians. Um, but he pr probably didn't know uh, uh, their, their shortcomings as well as, as, as we do now. Um, but I, I think his, in, his, insights, his insights were correct. And I find that in my old age, I've actually gone back to Marx and said, you know, he was right um, about, uh, about the capitalist class and uh, its lack of morality uh, and, the, and the, the degree to which it's driven by profit motive. Although I do have reservations about uh, materialist understanding of, of why capitalist function as they do. I think to some extent they believe their lunatic woke ideas. I, I, I think these are the ideas that they've had pumped into them from the time they entered the educational system, or certainly when they went to universities, certainly their social circles um, are full of these ideas. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's simply material interest that, are dri that is driving them. Um, Grass Grant, no, who knows? I also had my differences with Sam Francis over the same question. Uh, I think I th I th as hard as it, as it is for some of us to believe this, they probably do believe in woke ideology. Um, there, 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 is, there is a um, uh, a famous French Marxist named Althusser, uh, on whom I've written, and he finally came to the conclusion that what was the superstructure in Marxism, uh, the Überbau, or the the 
the, the, the ideological superstructure that justifies the, the, the prevalent class interest um, take on a life of their own. And I think he came around to the view which Gramsci and others, uh, other Marxists accepted in the end that ideas do heavily influence people. They're not, they're not simply, um, uh, they're not simply pretext to pursue class interest but at some point they do take over. And that, that is, is my view of the corporate capitalist and their alliance to woke ideology that um, it, it is not a mere pre pretext for pursuing interest, though it is, it is that as well at times. But uh, I, I think in varying degrees, they, they do drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, Grant, do you think that um, George Grant would be surprised to find this fusion of a radical left and the capitalist class? No, I, I don't think it would be a surprise, I, I guess, for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, going back to Lament, Lament for a Nation, uh, Grant, uh, in that book, argues that the Goldwater defeat in 1964 should have been a wake-up call uh, for the American right, mm -hmm. uh, because Goldwater uh, campaigned as if one could restore uh, the old bourgeois capitalist order. And then uh, he and his camp were surprised that uh, the establishment, the media, big business, academia, everybody came out after him and uh, clobbered him uh, and uh, the Republican Party as a result. Uh, and I, I think for Grant, uh, the problem was that uh, the, the American right at that time was still living in the past and didn't realize that the establishment had moved on. Uh, since the New Deal era. And, and so out of that, uh, we, uh, as far back as the 60s, we had something that Grant called state capitalism, not in the sense that the state controls everything. Uh, that would just be statism. But the state uh, works with capitalism to legitimize the system through propaganda, to uh, create the conditions of accumulation, uh, and to uh, maintain law and order if things break down. So it, uh, there's not much daylight between the state and capitalism, according to uh, uh, Grant. But the problem is Goldwater and Republicans uh, uh, didn't understand that, uh, nor did uh, John Diefenbaker, who, who also uh, fell victim to comparable forces in Canada, <laughs> Canadian politics uh, during the 1960s. But I, I guess the second reason that uh, comes to mind regarding your question, CJ, is that um, for Grant, uh, there's nothing more capitalistic than the idea that uh, human nature can be reinvented over and over again. Now, he, he's not referring to bourgeois capitalism. He's referring to this new state capitalism, which, of course, James Burnham associated with managerial uh, capitalism. Uh, but what could be more capitalistic than to uh, manufacture identities that are presumably independent of a fixed human nature? Uh, and I think that's why he wouldn't be surprised that there's an alliance between the woke left and capitalism today, despite some rhetorical uh, differences that are probably trivial. But they both agree that there's no such thing as nature in a moral sense. There's no such thing as human nature. And so... Uh, why not reinvent uh, one identity after another and uh, sell it on the marketplace? And, and what could be more anti-traditional than that? Do you think he saw in American capitalism a threat to Canada? Because you know a lot of Canadians, 
you know, in the 20th century, just saw Canada and the United States as having a really nice mm-hmm. relationship. But uh, Grant didn't see it that way at all. He's, he saw the American regime as sort of a threat to his way of life. Right. Well, he wasn't surprised that Canada entered the American orbit in the 1930s because many Canadians uh, were tired of the affiliation with uh, England. Many Canadians blamed uh, England for plunging into World War One and and uh, more or less demanding that Canada be part of that uh, carnage. So there was actually a lot of anger and disillusionment with uh, the mother country. And so America came across as a breath of fresh air. Uh, that it also uh, largely lost out or, or had sacrificed unnecessarily during, during uh, towards the end of World War One, uh, and of course America uh, came across as anti-imperial and progressivist, and, and that attracted many uh, people in the Canadian establishment as well. But by the 1960s, uh, Grant saw Canada was finished. Uh, the Canadian establishment, whether they knew it or not had become completely Americanized. Uh, and it didn't matter whether they considered themselves conservative or liberal. They, the, the Canadian establishment still saw itself as uh, kind of an extension of the American establishment. And, and for Grant, uh, unfortunately, that change was irreversible. Uh, there, there was no more reason to think that Canada could become a sovereign nation again than there were then there was uh, reason to think that you could restore uh, Tory conservatism uh, in an age of uh, state capitalist modernity. Paul, within the American post-war conservative movement, was there anyone that would have, um, you know, found interest or, you know, like, a, you know, consistency with their own views and those of George Grant? Um, you know, just, just off the top of my my head, I would think that somebody like Kirk if he had been aware of George Grant, I don't know if he was, uh, probably would have found that he had much in common with him. Um, the, the, the American conservative movement, you know, as I've indicated in my books on this subject, um, uh, you know, was, was a fusion of certain elements that came together expedientially to serve, <clears throat> you know, the, the cause of the Cold War after, uh, in the 1950s. Um, it, it did have various strains that it, you know, were held together by the by Buckley's movement, the National Review, but the um, the main interest was pursuing the Cold War. And by the way, Diefenbaker, who uh, um, Grant and I would agree was, you know, probably the last Canadian premier for whom we have any respect, um, uh, was was hated by the Buckleyites because he did not get behind us enough uh, in the Cold War. And uh, he actually complained that he was not told in, uh, in time anything about the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I, I think generally, generally the view of the conservative movement, uh, post-World War II conservative movement toward the Canadians was that, you know, they were sort of an adjunct of the United States and were expected to fall into line uh, with our struggle against world communism, godless communism. And um, I, I remember that, you know, I, I was sort of a, a conservative true believer at the time and was very upset that Diefenbaker did not uh, get behind Kennedy fast enough during the Cuban Missile Crisis, even if he had not been told in advance. Uh, the, uh, but th- there wasn't that much interest in Canada, you know, on the American conservative right. Um, I doubt that there were many people on the right, except for myself, who actually read George Grant. 
And that's because somebody gave me a wedding gift uh, of Lament for a Nation. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the answer was no. I, I have to say that on the other hand, when I was in Canada back in the 60s, I was struck by um, how Europhile, not only Anglophile, but Europhile, the Tory right was. And I don't know how representative of the country they were. They probably had very little interest, very little influence on the, uh, the conservative party, which uh, misleadingly called itself Tory. Um, but the, uh, they, they, they did remind me of, you know, of, of, of sort of European counter-revolutionaries. Uh, many of them were very anti-American. Um, of course, the left was also American. You had the, the, the so-called, what would they call the wafflers or the waffling? Right, right. They, they uh, but I think with them, it was just pretense. They, they seem to be just, they seem to have just ripped off whatever was in the American New Left at the time and try to make it Canadian. But they, they pretended they were anti-American. They didn't want to deal with American capitalism. Um, but I, I, I think that this was sort of like spitting in the wind by then, because I think as Grant points out, American influence was dominant um, after the Second World War in Canada. And the people I was, I, you know, I, I, I met during my visits to Canada were probably fringe groups. Um, although I, I think the left did carry on this anti-Americanism for a while, you know, and tried to pretend it was neutral between the United States and the Soviet Union, and they went side with the Americans in the Cold War and so forth. Um, but I, I kept noticing they sounded very much like the people uh, I ran into at the University of Wisconsin. There was like very little difference in their, in their political views. There's a few things uh, in American conservatism as a movement that is used more than like technology itself to demonstrate the progress of American mm -hmm. capitalism. Uh, in just for humanity, technology has been has facilitated, you know, its constant push upward. Uh, but George Grant saw technology in the complete opposite way. He thought right. technology was uh, a disintegrating, uh, you know, phenomenon. So um, I want you to talk a little bit about that, uh, Grant. But what was George Grant's view on technology and the role that it was playing in undermining, you know, the Canada that he loved? Well, I think for Grant, uh, technology and capitalism go hand in hand. They're, they're perfect for each other. Un unlike technology and socialism, socialism for Grant would try to restrain te technological progress, but, but that's ultimately uh, unrealistic. So, uh, from a, a post-bourgeois capitalist perspective, uh, technology is, is the perfect instrument for uh, not just creating new markets, but new types of uh, human beings, new types of uh, identities. So I think for Grant, that's why the left um, does, does not really... Uh, is not really effective or is not really sincere in its opposition uh, to capitalism. Because even if people on the left uh, do not like capitalist means, they do sympathize with capitalist ends mm -hmm. uh, or objectives. And none of that can be achieved uh, unless one unleashes uh, technology uh, based on the assumption that uh, human nature is completely malleable, uh, uh, there, there's no such thing as uh, natural distinctions between uh, men and women or, or be, between uh, different types of human beings. Uh, from a capitalist point of view, uh, all of that can be swept aside uh, if you use uh, technology properly. So uh, for Grant, uh, a technological 
conservatism uh, would almost be an oxymoron. Uh, I, I think he thought that maybe it would be possible for a conservative movement to restrain technology or technological progress, but uh, the Canadian establishment just had no interest in doing that. Uh, as Paul said, they just wanted to go along with uh, the American uh, Imperium. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, Grant was very pessimistic about uh, restoring conservatism in the face of this technological dynamo. Paul, you mentioned that Marcuse had uh, a critical view of capitalism, um, but the second, maybe third generations of, of the Frankfurt School and, and some of the influences that came out of that, um, they've seen much more, uh, they seem to appreciate what capitalism can accomplish for their ends in a much more serious way than Marcuse ever did. So do you, do you, see, do you see that as the case? Do you think some of these you know, critical theorists have um, just abandoned the criticism of capitalism, or do you think that they have more of a nuanced Machiavellian use of it? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the Marxism becomes increasingly vestigial, I would argue, in the Frankfurt School, just as it is with the woke left, uh, which, which the second generation of the Frankfurt School, represented by somebody like Jürgen Habermas, very clear, I mean, I think they very clearly prefigure uh, woke, woke, uh, wokeness and uh, uh, I, I, th I think Habermas is as representative of the second generation as um, Marcuse uh, or Dorna would be of the first generation. Um, and uh, Habermas is much more concerned with fighting fascism as culture um, or as social attitudes or German nationalism. Uh, the second generation I notice is much more anti-German. The first generation were not particularly anti-German they were anti-capitalist um, and they were against what they saw as, you know, the bourgeois way of life as being essentially fascist. The second generation gets into hating Germany as a form of anti-fascism and also with social control. They're very big on social control. Uh, many of them are extremely sympathetic to the East German communist regime, though um, I, I think if they had the opportunity to live there, they would find it was probably very conservative um, but, you know, I think they probably liked it because there was, uh, uh, they saw it as a total break from the German past, which was not, um, maybe West Germany was, represents more of a total break <laughs> than East Germany. Um, and all, as some sort of, you know, as a way of punishing the Germans for being such a bad nation by putting them under, uh, under a Soviet-style dictatorship. But um, the second generation seems to me to be, as I said, to be much closer to wokeness and much less interested in Marxism. Then, I mean, I've I've read I've read Habermas. He's he's an absolutely horrible stylist, you know, and uh, his German is impossible, and his English is uh, <clears throat> is indigestible as well. I mean, his translation, but I really don't see much Marxism in him. And strangely enough, he starts out as a Heideggerian, um, and then goes into this anti-German mode. Um, and for for a while, he is anti-American and pro-Soviet because that I suppose is fashionable. Um, but, if you, but again, if you look at the second generation of this, and even people who call themselves neo-Marxist in Germany, many of them are just woke, right? I mean, they're, 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 not, they're not real Marxist anymore. That's very clear. And um, Grant, I think, has provided me with some, uh, some pushback, uh, examples of pushback by real Marxists in Canada. 
who are absolutely appalled by wokeness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not Marxism, and they're quite right. Um, so, uh, but I, I, I think I think if you look at the Frankfurt School, the the Marxism was always somewhat questionable. I mean, they were much more into Freudianism and fighting fascism as a psychological problem um, and a social problem, a cultural problem. Uh, but I think the Marxism becomes even weaker uh, in the second generation uh, that emphasizes um, behavioral control and social transformation. <clears throat> Would Mar Marcuse be surprised with what happened to capitalism and, and the leftist capture of it? I mean, do you think would he would he be happy with wokeness? I don't know. I mean, so if you you know, I'm I'm looking at somebody like Angela Davis, who was like his last important student, and she's happy with you know with sort of everything. She sees herself calls herself a Marxist. She went to East Germany at one point. She loves feminism. Uh, she's a black nationalist. Um, but I I I think the the mix that we're left with now is a little bit different from what. Uh, from what uh, Marcuse was advocating when I knew him, uh, I don't remember him being any kind of feminist, mm -hmm. for one thing. I, um, and I think his views on homosexuality were probably those of the first generation of the Frankfurt School, that it is deviant behavior. Mm -hmm. It is the view of Freud, and that's the one that most that the Dorno and the other ones all accept. So I, I, don't, I don't think the LGBT agenda would be would be very congenial to Marcuse if he were still around. But would he be surprised that capitalism developed in this way, that, that, that the left and the capitalist class could come together like this? Yeah, I think he would be. <laughs> I don't know how he would react because, yeah. you know, he, uh, he assumed that the capitalists would be on the side of fascism and sexual repression, and they would hardly be in the forefront of uh, the LGBT revolution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just returning to, to George Grant and some of his contributions, um, you know, he 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 really did he ever interact with American conservatives and some of their uh, their pro-capitalist uh, rhetoric at all, uh, Grant? Not to my knowledge. Uh, I mean, Paul mentioned that uh, Grant was an admirer of Leo Strauss, um, mm -hmm. who, as far as I can tell, was not necessarily a defender of, of capitalism, although he certainly associated uh, Lockean mm -hmm. philosophy with the American founding uh, very strongly, but that doesn't necessarily make him a defender of capitalism. Uh, even so, uh, I mean, quick footnote here, I, I don't think Grant really understood Strauss anyway. He saw him as a traditionalist and even a defender of natural law philosophy, and that was a conventional misreading mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of Strauss uh, in the, the uh, 1950s and 60s. So I, I don't mm -hmm. fault Grant for that. Uh, per se. But as far as interactions with other people on the right, I, I think Grant was very much a, a loner. And uh, I'm glad that Paul informed me that uh, the, the Buckleyites didn't like Grant. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize they even paid any attention to him uh, whatsoever, but that uh, uh, doesn't surprise me. So um, I, I think for Grant, um, that there was never really such a thing as American conservatism. Mm. Uh, the, the, the American conservatism, so-called, was always uh, Lockean liberalism, which mm. went down to defeat with Goldwater in 1964. Uh, and, of course, that's a, a complex uh, uh, question anyway. Uh, but uh, I, I think for him, um, American conservatism... Uh, 
turned out to be just an echo mm -hmm. of uh, a traditional uh, progressivism that uh, was becoming more and more uh, obsolete uh, because of forces that the right defended, ironically, capitalism. <laughs> so it goes back to the the uh, the troubling question: uh, Did the did the right uh, really understand uh, who, who its enemy really was or was it defending its enemy uh, in the form of uh, capitalism? But no, I, I don't think there was much interaction. Uh, there was interaction between Grant and uh, the Canadian left, but as soon as they found out by the 1970s that uh, Grant was opposed to abortion and homosexuality and believed in social conservatism, I, I think they, they became alienated uh, from Grant as well. Was Grant alone up there in, in Canada with his views, or, or did he have a circle of uh, writers or other you know, political participants that would have agreed with him? Well, only in academia, not, not in the post-Diefenbaker conservative party. I, I don't think they had any real interest uh, in uh, Grant's writings. And uh, I would think even the more populist uh, forces in, in Western Canada uh, to this day have no real interest in Grant because uh, they, they tend to be offended by his view that the real conservative Canada is loyalist. Uh, <laughs> but there are populists in Canada who are offended by that uh, and, and who are unhappy with uh, the, the, the loyalist or Laurentian heritage, as they call it that uh, they believe still dominates Canada. As far as I can tell, it's been a very long time since <laughs> Laurentian uh, Tories or loyalists ever occupied any position of power uh, in Canada. So I, I think they're beating a, a dead horse there. If you if you look at some of the like Republican Party and Republican Party activist type rhetoric, um, they constantly come back to this idea that there's this um, underground socialist Marxist conspiracy to undermine constitutionalism in the United States. Uh, people like George Grant, they would have they would have laughed at that. I mean, the idea that that there's this communist conspiracy that is you know coming up through the Democratic Party, uh, he would have he would have completely rejected that whole framing of the problem. And he would have seen it much more as a um, explicit anti-traditionalism that's uh, vocalized in the advertising, in the products that we buy and sell, in the ideologies that are sold to us uh, at the bookstore and in colleges. You know, the, the problems in America and in the West for someone who has been influenced by Grant would be much more explicit and in your face than this secret cabal of communist <laughs> sympathizers. Uh, I want, Paul, can you, can you comment on, on that a little bit? How do you react when people say that there's a, a communist threat that people need to be paying attention to? Yeah, th th this, this, of course, is, uh, has a very long genealogy in the United States. Uh, because the conservative movement in the 1950s, you know, rallied around Joe Mac Joseph McCarthy, who had a profound uh, influence on the founding of National Review and the Buckleyites uh, persuasion. Um, and uh, it, was, it was assumed there really was a communist conspiracy because the John Burt Society pushes this narrative. And while the conservative movement by now has, you know, totally rejected McCarthyism, McCarthy, uh, the John Bird Society and so forth, they are very comfortable with the myth of a communist conspiracy or a socialist conspiracy, in other words, socialism. And, uh, you know, the, uh, what, what, I, what I've argued is that this is a very useful idea if you are trying to 
uh, rally the, the base of the Republican Party. Um, now, the, the, the base of the Republican Party is not against government uh, welfare programs as long as it benefits them and their friends. Um, they are just against something called socialism. And uh, socialists are, are un-American. And according to Mark Levin, not only so, but communist and Marxist have been dominating us for at least the last 150 years, 100 years, 150 years. And uh, they, they were present in the progressive era and they've been you know, taking over uh, uh, ever, ever since. Now, I, I think there are several reasons that conserve, the conservative movement, what calls itself the conservative movement is, is happy with that idea. Number one, um, people do resonate. You know, they've been hearing this so long that there is the socialist or Marxist conspiracy, meaning anyone who's not on our side and who favors more economic programs than we do, because obviously, you know, the the people who use it are all, all in favor of social security, Medicare, all kinds of other programs, but then there are people out there who want more, and those are the socialists. Uh, and by the way, I do agree with the left on this. I, I think this is utterly opportunistic, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this, this uh, uh, calling people socialists who, uh, you know, favor all the welfare programs you're for and, and uh, then, then some other ones as well. And of course, Jonah Goldberg in his book on liberal fascism goes after the Democrats because they favor a welfare program that he's not in favor of. Although he accepts all the ones that exist up until now, but you know, the, the ones that, that, that they, this makes them socialist or Nazis or something like that. Okay, the, 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 the other reason I'm convinced that American conservatives focus on this socialist danger is it's a way of avoiding more um, more serious confrontation with wokeness, mm. right? Um, if, if I spend all my time attacking socialism, maybe I can get woke leftists to vote for me too uh, by saying, you know, we're, we're going to protect you against um, those who are coming after your corporation, um, those who are going to endanger your economic. But we're on your side. And we're not going to talk about gay marriage or trans or the transgender, this other stuff. You can, you can have all this woke stuff you want or Black Lives Matter, whatever you want, we'll give you. But we're going to help you deal with economic. We'll address economic issues, which is the growth of government beyond the point that it, you know, it's useful to you. Uh, and then we'll call that socialism. And, and uh, all the people in the Democratic Party, they're socialists, and we, we are anti-social. They're Marxist, and we're anti-Marxist. So by using this archaic uh, vocabulary that doesn't apply uh, to what I think are the most serious issues that face our society, um, the conservative movement can pick up support. They can, they can also get support from, uh, you know, from married homosexuals, uh, who are corporate capitalists and who are against against socialism? Some of them give them money, so uh, you know I I I, th I think they 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 use this rhetoric opportunistically, um, um, and uh, it is also rhetoric that works because people who vote for the Republican Party or people who identify themselves as conservative have been fighting something called socialism for a very long time. I would remind I always remind my readers that the most um, the most votes the Communist Party in the United States ever picked up, I think, was like 63,000 uh, dur during the Depression, mm -hmm. um, right? I mean, uh, and, you know, I always, in my book on anti-fascism, I, I 
you know, point to the the obvious fact that w- the woke left can probably pick up about uh, 70 or 80 million votes, <laughs> as opposed to the measly 60 something thousand that the communists picked up. And the woke left is at least as radical as the communist party was. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it would be uh, a good idea if we would address present uh, moral social challenges rather than beat up uh, on this dead horse of socialism. Grant, would, would, uh, would George Grant have spent time differentiating between 19th century laissez-faire capitalism and the 20th century uh, managerial capitalism, or was one uh, an extension of the other for him? Well, yeah, I, I think he drew a very, he drew a very uh, surgical distinction between the old bourgeois capitalism mm-hmm. that he thought was passe, uh, certainly by the 1960s, mm-hmm. uh, it's not before that, on the one hand. And uh, again, what he broad, broadly speaking, he called state capitalism. Uh, so uh, for Grant, um, I mean, bourgeois capitalism uh, was could could no more easily be restored than, say, the late mm-hmm. Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was gone. And mm-hmm. not because it had been undermined by uh, Marxism. Uh, because it had been undermined by its own establishment, mm-hmm. which of course uh, Marx uh, prophesied uh, as well. So uh, the greatest enemy of uh, bourgeois capitalism turned out to be uh, capitalists on both sides of the Canadian and uh, U.S. border. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think Grant would have almost been bemused by uh, Frank Meyer's uh, idea of fusionist conservatism and how uh, libertarianism and traditional conservatism are, are natural allies. I mean, I mean, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but I, I think for Grant, by the time Meyer was writing that in the early 60s, that was long gone. I mean, I, I think Grant recognized that the bourgeois order had some sense of virtue. He did give credit some credit to his Protestant ancestors uh, who prevented <laughs> that bourgeois class. Sometimes it's a little hard on them too, but he did credit to them for creating self-government and uh, for having some understanding of virtues. And just that it didn't last, it turned out mm-hmm. to be obsolete, uh, probably by World War II, if, if not uh, shortly after that. So uh, I think the new capitalism of today, uh, according to Grant, rests on almost a hidden social contract. And, and, and this is comparable to what Paul has argued in After Liberalism, too, that there, there is this hidden social contract between the left and, and capitalists, uh, that as long as uh, the left doesn't attack capitalism per se in any serious sense, uh, and, and as long as they stick to just pursuing different identities and different expressions of sexual freedom, uh, then the contract will hold. So it doesn't matter what what they do in in ethical terms uh, or with their private lives, as long as they don't target uh, capitalists in the process. So I I would call that an implicit or unofficial social contract uh, between the left and and Mm -hmm. the business today. Um, Paul, before... um... Before World War II, the right wouldn't have been as ideologically committed to capitalism in an absolute sense um, in the same way that it was afterward. Uh, So Grant is not alone in the overall traditional or right-wing 
um, space in terms of criticism of of capital and, and the type of power that it can wield. Um, but people don't really realize that today. They don't realize that conservatism has a long history of being against the liberalizing capitalism. Uh, so just give us a rundown as we near the end here. What what would conservatives have said um, before the post-war conservative movement um, that made, maybe would have made them more consistent with what Grant was seeing? Yeah, I, I think it's important to recognize that what we consider to be the Euro, the American right of the interwar period um, is a, a mixture of groups, uh, not, not all of which were on the same wavelength, um, but they, they all generally opposed the growth of the modern administrative state. Uh, they weren't necessarily in favor of unbounded capitalism, but they, uh, they, they, they saw the modern administrative state as something that endangered um, freedom um, and traditional society, traditional community. So you, you, get, you get people from the Southern agrarians to somebody like um, John Flynn, who was sort of a libertarian, uh, and Mencken, they're all sort of seem to be on the same side. Isabel Patterson, who's a kind of early feminist. But they, I, I would argue that their defense is not really so much of capitalism um, as an attack on what uh, uh, Murray Rothbard, uh, I think Randolph Bourne before that used to speak about as, as the, uh, the welfare, the welfare warfare state. Mm. And um, uh, they did not really see capitalism, unless you were a Southern agrarian, that, that of course was different because they were very critical of, and they were traditional conservatives, but um, the, the, the more garden variety types that uh, Justin Raimondo and libertarians very often cite uh, were not all that critical of capitalism. They did not want to see the United States plunge into another European war and they hated the administrative state. They just saw it as something that was you know, taking away constitutional liberty. So um, the, the actual glorification of progress in capitalism will come later. Um, I, I, I was gonna mention that uh, I, I attended this lecture once by George Nash, who was on Herbert Hoover, was given in West Branch, Iowa. And he pointed out that Herbert Hoover being an American conservative believed in progress. That was sort of a basic tenet of American conservatism, you know, getting back to what Grant said about George Grant. Um, so that, you know, part of the package was progress. Then in 1972 or 73, that book behind me, Robert Nisbet wrote a book on the idea of progress during his neoconservative period, and he did have mm -hmm. one. And I think it's interesting that Nisbet's earliest work is on uh, Bonal, the French counter-revolutionary, and it's very positive. <laughs> um, and it was his doctoral dissertation in the 1940s. Um, and if you read any of his works uh, written, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, like the Twilight of Authority, the Sociological Tradition, the, uh, any, any, of, any of these works, uh, the, the Quest for Community, they're all written from the trad a traditional, almost counter-revolutionary position. Then when he comes under the neoconservative influence in the 1970s, he sounds exactly like them, that America is based on the idea of progress. That we, you know, we used to, uh, we, we weren't as good in the old days and now our moral consciousness is growing. But, you know, there are some people standing in the way like racist and, and other not very nice people who don't have the proper understanding of progress, which, you know, this book will try to convey. And the entire morality of the West depends on the idea of progress um, and overcoming, you know, past prejudices and limitations and becoming better. 
Um, and uh, then when he falls out of favor with the Neo or, or, or turns against them, he wrote a, a review of my book, um, The Search for Historical Meaning, a National Review in 1986, attacking the neoconservatives and repudiating <laughs> all the things he had said earlier. <laughs> that was the last time National Review reviewed a book of mine. Uh, but I, I thought, but it was a very long review and it was mostly, it was mostly about his uh, repudiation of neoconservatism. But it, it somehow the, the impression that that you give, if if you want to be an American conservative and that you have to believe in the idea of progress, and uh, you know George Nash would explain you know, this is something that Herbert Hoover, who was you know a paradigm of American Republican conservatism, believed in all of his life was that it was a belief in progress. Um, the, the the last point I was going to make is that some of the arguments in, in George Grant about the difference between bourgeois, the bourgeois period, and then the later period. Uh, of capitalism um, is found in Horkheimer's writings in the 1930s, uh, one of the founders of the Frankfurt School, uh, in which he talks about the de burgerliche Kapitalismus and then the de burgerliche Denkfeld, the bourgeois world of thought is gone, and then capitalism changes in this. So, so Grant was taking over an idea that had been current in the interwar period, even among many many left wing radicals, what would what would George Grant have thought of the idea of progress? Was he an optimist? No, I, I think he rejected the <laughs> idea of progress as <clears throat> historically uh, inaccurate and philosophically indefensible. But he did understand just how ideologically appealing it was mm. uh, to both the establishment right and the establishment left. Of course, uh, he did. He did also uh, know that ideas don't just exist in a void. Ideas are backed up by power, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, especially the power of big business and, and the state. Uh, so, for example, uh, I, mean, I, I think Grant would really get into trouble for saying this today, but he, he once uh, argued that the civil rights movement in uh, the United States never could have achieved its success without uh, the the uh, power of the state or big business uh, behind them. Uh, I recall Hillary Clinton saying something like that in her campaign against Barack Obama, that mm -hmm. uh, without LBJ, the civil rights movement would have, wouldn't have been very successful. And there was enormous outrage over that. But uh, I think Grant's point was that um, uh, the Deep South's resistance to the civil rights movement was doomed from the start. Uh, because it was, it was already a dying culture mm -hmm. that uh, was under surveillance by uh, the managerial state and, and its uh, allies. And, and therefore, um, uh, the, the civil rights movement uh, owed a lot of its success, maybe even most of its success, to not, not to its ideas per se, uh, or not just its ideas, but to uh, power, uh, to the, the power of the establishment. Mm -hmm. that, uh, it, it, that wasn't a popular view when Grant said it, and I think it's a great <laughs> speech today. <clears throat> well, I, I do recommend people read uh, George Grant, even if you're not from Canada. He has a lot of um, there's a, a lot of perception about where things have gone in the 20th and uh, now the 21st century. I would recommend Lament for a Nation, and he has a couple books on uh, technology 
And uh, I think one of them is called Technology and Empire. And then there's a George Grant uh, reader out there that has a lot of his collected essays and writings that I would recommend as well. I think a lot of younger conservatives need to, uh, you know, read these things and as they as they prep for a, a radically new left that has new threats. So thank you both for your time, and uh, we'll do it again. 